0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando.
1: Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are their circumcision. a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory and their shame, with minds set on earthly things. This is God's word. Please be seated.
0: So we continue this morning in our study through Philippians, and from 50,000 feet, uh, the, the, the third chapter of the book of Philippians... Um, is Paul's way of contrasting the way of the gospel or the Christian path uh, with two canyons that appear on either side of that path. Uh, in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul is contrasting Christianity uh, with both irreligion on the one hand and religion on the other hand. Uh, I included verses 17 through 19 from last week's uh, text just to remind you of what Paul is doing uh, sort of from a bird's eye view. In verse 18, Paul is offering himself as an example of how to walk the walk of Christianity. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. One of the most frequently used pictures of the Christian life and of what Christianity is in the Bible is the picture of a pilgrimage, a path, a journey Way. In fact, uh, if you've been reading in CBR, you know that Christians, long before they were ever called Christians, uh, were called members of the way. Uh, so if you think of Christianity as a path, um, and if your mind, if you can think of Christianity uh, as, uh, as a path on, on the ridge of a mountain, and if in your mind's eye, uh, you can see two significant canyons on both sides of the gospel path, uh, Paul is telling us that on the one hand, uh, you have uh, irreligion, but on the other hand, uh, you have religion. And so if you uh, look in our text, Paul gives two defining marks of a religious person. Not a Christian, but a religious person. He says in uh, verse, uh, uh, let's see, he, he says in verse 3, 3 and 4, uh, Paul says that a religious person puts their confidence in their flesh. That is, they put their trust for being okay with God in their own performance. And then, and then secondly, in verse 9, Paul says, The religious person believes and lives as if they have to earn a righteousness of their own that comes from obeying The law. Now, if you're new to the Bible, or if you're new to the church, or if you're new to what the Bible actually teaches, I want you to know that from a broad perspective, the Bible sees three categories of people in the world. Uh, Up to this point, you may have thought that there's really only two categories. There are the religious and the irreligious. The irreligious, you may have thought, are those who break the law and do bad things. The religious, you may have assumed, were the good people who obey and just keep on doing good. But the Bible actually teaches that there are two deadly canyons on either side of the gospel, irreligion and religion. My main goal for you today, if you're investigating Christianity, is to understand that Christianity is not religion. The Bible says that every human being is either religious, that is, they're trying to earn God's favor, or irreligious, that is, they're trying to convince themselves that there is no God and all they should do is do whatever they want, or lastly, there are Christians, uh, those who are recovering from both religiosity and irreligiosity. And I will explain more about that in time. Every human being at their core is either religious, irreligious, or Christian. Most of us in our stories have spent time in multiple camps. Some of us converted to Christianity out of an irreligious life, some of us converted to Christianity. Out of a religious life, and, and a lot of us, including myself, have actually spent significant time in, in all three camps. My early days, um, I was a religious, a religious young man. Um, I thought I had to do the right thing. I was scared to death of doing the wrong thing, and I started out pretty well, like a lot of you. And then something happened called puberty, and uh, unfortunately, I became a galactic failure at religion. Um, I had no self-control. I failed frequently. I felt ashamed. I felt empty. I I was labeled a failure. Uh, I decided that if I was going to be a failure, I might as well enjoy it. And so I went to the other side, spent some time on the irreligious side of the gospel path, and I rarely, if ever, told myself no. The only thing uh, that would cause me to say no is that I might get caught. And so that path rarely gave satisfaction and joy and rest and peace and and rarely any sort of lasting and deep pleasure. And then by God's grace, I saw the beauty and the freedom and the hope of the gospel as an end to both. The gospel is an end to religion, and it's an end to irreligion. But listen to this even further. In my life now, In my life, now, as a Christian, on the gospel path, I will find myself stumbling into and falling into and straying into both canyons, the religious canyon and the irreligious canyon. At times, I'll still go through seasons, and I'll think that my non-believing friends and neighbors, the pagans around me, I'll go through seasons of thinking, they're living a better life than me. They're having more fun than me. They're making more of this life than I am. And in those seasons when I give in to sinful passions and obey them instead of the Lord, the Bible calls that your religious sin. But also at times I fall into religious sins. When I'm proud or self-righteous or self-sufficient, when I'm controlling and condemning, I know that I'm sinning in a religious fashion. When I intentionally deceive others from what is the obvious truth in order that my status can be maintained, I'm a religious sinner. So, most of our sermon today is actually on religion. And I wanted to give you the entire picture of the path and the two canyons on each side because I'm going to reference all of it in time. But for now, I just want us to think about religion. I want us to think about it this way rating religion, repenting for religion, and rescue from religion. Okay? First, rating religion. I want to ask you a question which is more dangerous? Which is more treacherous, more deadly? Religion or irreligion? So if there are three categories, not two, that means there are two bad options, but which is the better of the bad options? If I forced you to relate uh, to, to rate religion and irreligion, which would you pick? Of course, neither is good. Of course, I'm not asking you actually in your life to pick either of them. I'm just saying, which do you uh, think of as, let's say, the better and safer option? I think we would all pick religion over irreligion as the better of the bad options. That if we had to fall off the Christian path, we'd like to fall into the religious side. That if we had to pick a side for our loved ones to start in before they found Christianity, we'd probably want to pick for them religion. But the Bible teaches that religion is far more dangerous to our spirituality than irreligion. The Bible teaches the opposite of what we value. Think about chapter three of Philippians. Paul barely speaks to the irreligious. Down at the bottom, it's just a simple reminder. When he speaks of the irreligious, he weeps compassionately over them. Contrast that to how Paul handles the religious. Three times in verse two, Paul says, be on the lookout for, beware of, be on guard against the religious. The one who says that you have to earn God's love. In Philippians 3, they're they're Judaizers. These were folks who said they were Christians, but uh, they were Jews, and they would go to Gentile converts, and they would say to them, You have to obey the Old Testament law in its totality to be okay with God. Yes, we believe in Jesus, but in addition to Jesus, you have to obey the law, and you certainly, if you're a man, you have to be circumcised, or you're not in, and you're not accepted, and you're not okay. And in the face of religion or earning God's love, Paul doesn't even begin to weep. He insults them three times. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators. Verse 2. I really don't know what my point is here, except for maybe a paradigm shift for Christians. But I'm here to tell you that a big part of the text is that we think religion is safe and Paul thinks the exact opposite. If we had to pick a canyon to put a loved one in or if we had to pick a canyon to put our child in before they became a believer, we think it's safer to put them in the religious camp as opposed to the irreligious camp. And look at what Paul says in verse 1. He says, you want to talk about the safe option? The safe option is for me to warn you against and insult religious people. We'd foolishly rather raise a religious kid who's trying to earn their salvation than an irreligious kid doing what they want when they wanted to. Of course, all of us, our number one choice would be a humble Christian path for our children. But if we had to choose, and when time is of the essence, we choose all the time. We pick religion over irreligion just about every time. Let me prove it to you. You have to pick one, one or the other. You have to pick one or the other. A daughter who sins by being sexually promiscuous. Or a daughter who sins by being sexually pure, but proud? What do you pick? The proud one or the prostitute? Which one puts them in a better place for the gospel? Now, of course, all of us want a daughter. I have three of them. I'm begging God <laughs> for a daughter who abstains from sexual promiscuity and abstains from from pride because they love and they trust Jesus. And of course, to be clear, the Bible says both are wrong, both are sinful, both are deadly. But the Bible also consistently teaches that pride in good deeds is more dangerous, more deadly, and less safe than sexual sin. I'll say it a little more shockingly. We'd all prefer the smug prude to the prostitute. The Bible clearly teaches and shows that Jesus did better with prostitutes than Pharisees. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus had a better track record saving irreligious people than religious people. So in my parenting, when I raise a religious child, I I think, now of course, absolutely, Jesus can save both. But if I just look at Jesus' teaching, he says he's more effective saving the irreligious. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, other than maybe just a different paradigm from what we're used to. You think I'm crazy? I know you do. I think I'm crazy. I said that to Tricia last night. She goes, You better prove that. <laughs> Luke 7. Jesus has been invited to the house of a Pharisee, one who adhered to the strictest interpretation of the Old Testament law and the oral tradition, one who played it safe, the good guy, the guy who read his Bible and taught Sunday school. And during dinner, a woman of the night, a sinner, a prostitute, broke into the dinner and wept over Jesus, wet his uh, feet with her tears, cleansed his feet with her hair. She kept kissing his feet. And Simon the Pharisee looked down on the woman and looked down on Jesus because he associated with the woman and in pride and arrogance and confidence in his own flesh, he left that night unforgiven and enslaved. The prostitute left forgiven justified, and on the path to freedom. That's one of the major themes in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus does better with prostitutes than Pharisees. Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of the famous prodigal son. Uh, Jesus was motivated, I might add, to tell the story because religious people, religious people were mad at him for hanging out with irreligious people. And in the parable, Jesus teaching the younger son who represents the irreligious category of people, he uses and he disrespects his dad and he takes his inheritance and he wastes it on pagan living with parties and prostitutes. He gets to the end of himself and he hates his life and he returns home to the father. In the end, by the grace of God and relationship with God, he's at the party. He's being treated like an obedient son who never sinned. The older brother, representing the religious folk, came in from working in the field. And he heard people having fun. And he heard that his younger brother uh, had repented and that, that that was being celebrated. And he was angry and he was mad and he wouldn't go into the party And he, too, disrespects his father. He shows that he, too, was in it just for the money. And at the end of the parable, the religious brother is not in the party. Now, listen closely. If the younger brother had stayed away from the father in a distant land, he would have been lost, too. Irreligion is deadly. But according to Jesus, when he teaches... He teaches that irreligion is easier to turn from than religion. That religion appears to be so close to Christianity, but it couldn't be farther away. Jesus teaches that he does better with prostitutes than with Pharisees. He does better with the irreligious than the religious. Luke 18, two men go to the temple to worship. The Pharisee essentially worships himself and tells God how good he is compared to other people. The tax collector, the adulterer, the extortioner stood far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, the adulterer goes home justified, righteous in the presence of God. The religious man, trusting in himself, goes away, A sinner. Jesus did better with prostitutes than Pharisees. I think, if nothing else, I'm just kind of looking for a paradigm shift for believers. Religion is not safer, it is not a better option to irreligion. In our lives, we're much more concerned about our passionate irreligious sins than our proud religious sins. In our parenting, When we're too tired to parent the heart and the gospel, we lean towards religion. We think it's safe. We use fear tactics and control strategies, and we up the discipline and we down the delight. And we think this is actually good for them in the long run. I wish I had more time for them. And I'm inviting us to realize that Jesus just says, I can save both. But I do better with prostitutes than Pharisees. I've put together some, some visuals to illustrate this. The first one is going to come up on the screen. Now, don't make fun of my art. I'm no good at it. And this is really good, I know. We tend to think that religion is a gentle slope away from Christianity and that irreligion is a canyon. Or second, we, we tend to think that, that religion is a step towards Christianity, that it's sort of part of the path. That at the bottom is irreligion, that's sexual promiscuity. A few steps up is religion, that's sexually pure but proud. A few steps more and you're there. You're right to where God wants you to be. Paul actually teaches in our text, religion is not a step in the right direction. It's not neutral. It's a a drastically dangerous move away from the gospel. The last one, if you could show it. I think the Bible actually teaches that. Look at verse 7 in your worship folder. Paul says, whatever gains I had from religion, and we'll talk about it in a minute. He says, I counted that as a loss. And so Paul is calling to mind an accounting ledger as an illustration. He says three times in two verses, seven and eight, he says his good deeds done in an effort to become a righteous man on his own, they were not a credit that was too little and didn't quite get him there. Nor were his religious actions immaterial or neutral. He says they're a loss, literally a debit, a damage. He's saying religion is spiritually damaging. What we might see as an asset is a dangerous loss. And then with with words not genteel enough for us in our translations, Paul says in verse 8 that his religious deeds are rubbish. That's the slang word for excrement. The best translation, if we were willing and bold enough to follow God, would start with an S-H and end with an I-T. And we think it's safer, and it's a better option. So if you just go back to the simple visual, there, there are two canyons on either side of the gospel. Both are deadly, but if we have to rate them, we want to join Paul and Jesus, and we want to see religion as more treacherous. I'm going I'm to try and get us to repent for religion next. That's why I'm going this far. Jesus said in Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if nothing more, this morning is a paradigm shift. If you're investigating, Christianity is not a religion. If you're a believer, religion is not safe. It's not a step in the right direction. So now, repenting for religion, okay? Repenting for religion. To become a Christian... And to grow as a Christian, we have to repent from the bad things we do. That's irreligion. And we also have to repent for the good things we do for bad reasons. That's religion. So first, I want to define religion clearly. I want, I want us to see what we're running from. Religion, according to our text, is trying to earn your own righteousness, Paul says in verse 9, Christians do not have a righteousness of their own, but they have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Religion is, verse 3, putting your confidence or trust in your flesh or in the life you live. So if, re- if religion is earning righteousness, what is righteousness? Righteousness is a resume. It's a resume that gets you in and gets you accepted. What's a resume? A resume is a list of achievements. It's a list of experiences. It's a list of talents. It's a list of connections. A list of referrals. It's all on one piece of paper. And the express goal of the resume is to get in, to be accepted, to gain a position with benefits. Whether it's a school or a corporation or a social club, righteousness is a resume that gets you in with God. Accepted in his sight. A blessed position In his presence. So, this is religion. It's the continuous and exhausting work of putting together and keeping together a resume that keeps you in with God. The continuous and exhausting work of putting together and keeping together a resume that keeps you in with God. Religion is the building of a righteousness resume. That's what you have in verses five and six essentially this is Paul's religious resume and he says that his resume is better than any of the Judaizers better than any of the Pharisees who at this point in, in his life were seeking to kill him and we don't have to go we don't have time to go through all of it but he says I was a Pharisee that is I, I had the strictest understanding of the Old Testament law and all the oral tradition around it that, that fenced me away from even coming close to breaking that law and then he says at the bottom As to righteousness under the law or in the law, blameless. Not not genuine righteousness, not not actual righteousness in God's sight, but a righteousness that other humans could inspect and declare. He he said, a righteousness based on external behavior, spotless, blameless. No charge could be brought against him. No known external mistakes against the standard established. By men. Blameless. Religion is this it's taking the good law of God, which is a heart of love generally expressed in specific behaviors, and it's taking that law and it's making that law more detailed, more specific, and more um, exclusively assessed by external realities. And religion is building a resume of observable behaviors that flow from a belief in self and builds a pride in the heart. And then religion is presenting that resume to God as the reason for why He should let us in, why He should bless us, why we should not have to suffer, why our lives should be easy and pain free. And Paul says that this religion that any Pharisee would have been proud of, he says. It did not gain for him in terms of spirituality, but it was a loss. It was damaging. It could not deal with his heart. It was not what God wanted or what God sees as righteous. If we want Christ, if we want to know God, if we desire to be Christians, we must not only grow in our repentance over bad deeds, And the heart that chose them, but we must also grow in our repentance over good deeds flowing from a proud and willful heart. Essentially, what you have in verses seven through nine is Paul repenting for religion. So, Paul doesn't trust in his religiosity, Paul doesn't see his religiosity as something better than his irreligiosity, he doesn't ignore it and think, I'll work on it later after I work on these other sins. He vigorously and continually addresses his religiosity, and he repents for it. First, Paul Paul says that he dealt with his religion in the past. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had, past tense, I counted, past tense, as loss for the sake of Christ. What this means is this. If at some point in the past we've never asked God to save us from our good deeds, we're not Christians. Those who are genuinely saved are those who in the past at some point ask God to forgive them by grace for their irreligious deeds and counted or reckoned and considered their good deeds to be worthless. In fact, crap in the sight of God when it comes to gaining righteousness. Our framework for Philippians is do nothing, gain everything, Give anything. And by do nothing, I do not mean do nothing bad to gain everything. That's religion. I mean this, actively and purposefully and intentionally. Do nothing good in order to gain everything. Do nothing in our tagline is a proactive, intentional Doing of nothing to gain God's love and God's blessing. If we want to know Jesus, if we want to grow uh, in the likeness of him, it's more crucial. I think it's more crucial to confess the good deeds we do for bad reasons. It's more crucial to confess religion than irreligion. And yet, I know what my journal is filled with. To really throw ourselves into the grace of God, to throw ourselves into God, we have to throw from our hands any good deed by which we want to recommend ourselves to God. We have to throw from our hands, as if it were disgusting rubbish, any good deed that would make us proud or self sufficient. This is essentially what Paul means when he says in verse 8, indeed, or much more. So he just talked about the past. Now he says, I count, present tense, every good deed as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Part of our daily routine has to be this. Telling ourselves that the good we do as Christians is not something to be proud about or seek righteousness in. We must daily protect ourselves from the arrogance that would distance us from Jesus by telling ourselves that our good deeds now, they today, are a loss. They're worse than worthless when it comes to keeping God's love, keeping God's favor, keeping God's acceptance. In order to know and experience Christ, we must constantly repent for religion, throwing ourselves into the gospel we did nothing to gain everything, and the good deeds of today don't gain us anything that we didn't already have in Jesus. One more way Paul shows us how to repent for religion. We all have the tendency to look at past obedience when dealing with present sin. Okay? In the middle of verse 8, Paul says, I have to count as rubbish, present tense, those things I suffered as a loss, in the past, so this is a little bit fuzzy. It's, he's saying this sometimes when caught in the guilt and shame of a present sin, I'm tempted to go back to past successes and place my faith there instead of in the gospel. This is what it looks like for me in my habitual repetitive sins, my irreligious sins, when I lack self control. I will go a few days or a few weeks obeying, doing the right thing, not falling into the, to the irreligious sin. And I will even in those days, I will often remind myself that this obedience was not me, this is God's work in me, that this obedience is not why God loves me, it's not why I'm okay, and while I'm obeying, I try to protect myself uh, through present tense repentance from the pride and the arrogance and the good deed. But when I fall again... As I always seem to do, I stand at a fork in the road. Will I run to Jesus and his forgiveness and his record for me in the gospel? Or will I run to the past and remind myself and God that I was good for a few days? Will I ask God to accept me and count me as righteous and bless me because Jesus lived and died for me? Or because of past gospel fruit that I've now Called religion. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I had more religion than anybody. When it comes to human standards, I built a righteousness rivaled by no one. And he is saying, that is excrement compared to knowing Jesus. And he is saying that when I'm tempted to look at what's in my hands that I have done that is good, He's saying, I've got to fling that from my hands so that I can gain Jesus and throw myself into the gospel. Last, very quickly, rescue from religion. So religion uh, is to be rated as more dangerous than any of us would naturally think. Religion, like irreligion, must be repented for in order to be saved and in order to grow. And finally, there is a rescue or there's one rescues, let me be very clear. We have to be righteous to be in God's presence. We have to have a perfect resume to be in with God. We have to have a perfect record of following God's law to be approved and blessed. The rescue from religion is not found in relaxing God's standards. That's irreligion. The rescue from religion is verse 9, gaining Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having a righteousness, a resume that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness, the resume from God that depends on faith. This is the gospel. That Jesus, after living a perfect and holy and humble and loving life, after building the greatest resume that's ever been built, the only perfect resume ever, he goes to the cross and he dies the death of the unrighteous and of the cursed and the sinner. On the cross, Jesus takes our resume upon him. He takes our unemployability spiritually. He takes it upon himself. And he bears the consequences and the wrath and the judgment we deserve. He not only takes our penalty for looking for life and the wrong things, he takes our penalty for the pride in which we think we can save ourselves. He takes them both. And in exchange, he says, here's my record. Here's my righteousness. Here's my resume. Grab a hold of this. And what you have in Jesus, you have a Savior who can save the irreligious and the religious. Who is the greatest religious man ever? The man writing Philippians 3. Do you see that? Paul is proof. He's like, I know that Jesus can save pagans, and I also know that he can save Pharisees, too. This is not hopeless. This is the man in the most treacherous position declaring his salvation in Christ. I mean, think about it. Jesus not only obeyed the law and never looked for life in irreligious deeds uh, in in fulfilling his passions. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way that we were tempted. So every uh, lack of self-control in us was a temptation that Jesus went through and he made it beautifully. But he was also never proud and never condemning never self-righteous. He loved sinners. He partied with sinners. He gave his life for sinners. And that right there is the righteousness a religious person needs to be acquainted, to hope for, to love sinners. And Jesus, the one who rescues from religion and irreligion. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that, um, man, we're far worse off than we could ever imagine. We are loved more deeply than we ever dream. We thank you that our condition apart from you is more deplorable and more desperate than we can even understand. But in you, our position is more beautiful than we can get our minds around. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that your gospel can cover us on both sides of religion and irreligion. We thank you for your beautiful life on the path uh, that God laid out. We thank you that your path led to the cross where you died uh, for me, for my sins and my folly, for my lack of self-control and for my pride. Would you please help us uh, today to understand what is from you? what it is that you want us to do with this text. Uh, If we are insulted as I am, would you show us why? And uh, would you show us where you want us to grow, uh, knowing that what has been said today is nothing compared to what Paul said? Uh, Would you shepherd us and deal with us kindly and graciously and powerfully? Would you rescue us? In your name, Jesus, we pray.